Welcome to the Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front line. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamus MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Al Villarin. Dr. Villarin serves as Vice President and Chief Medical Information Officer for Nuvance Health. He is an emergency medicine trained physician passionate about the potential role that health information technology can play in improving care quality and health equity, and is focused on reducing the negative impact of EMRs on providers, including the physician-patient relationship, job satisfaction, inefficiencies, and the gap that remains with interoperability and decision support. Dr. Villarin, Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. It's so amazing having you on the show today. You've had such an impactful career, really focused on improving patient care, access, and health equity. I know you trained in the military, you've been clinically active in emergency medicine, and you got into informatics right when we transitioned from paper charting to the electronic health record. But to start the conversation, I was curious, what brought you into healthcare in the first place? My father was uh, an X-ray technologist with Exxon Corporation for many years. He started out in Standard Oil and, and worked with them for 30 years, retired from Exxon. He brought home, I can clearly remember, into our kitchen, a, a light box, an X-ray light box and hard films that were just putting up there. And I would go through them and ask him what these are, what this was. And it got me interested in the human body. That's what all started. And then I, I took that light box and, and, and the stack of X-rays and brought it to a little science fair. And I became the person who knew about the medicine side, the, the biology side. And for that, the passion was just grew from there. Helping people, great upbringing, conservative, understanding what the people's needs are, and ultimately led to my being a, a servant leader that I think I am very happy to be so. Because in order to help people who cannot help themselves, emergency medicine was the perfect career for me to choose that. So going from reading x-rays to really developing a, a way to enhance the passion for all patients whether it be eye injuries, pediatric codes, trauma, or heart attack, knowing that the information there was important to help those people. And I get great satisfaction when I don't practice anymore. When I used to practice, it was a wonderful way to give back for those who have given to me all my life. So thanks for the question. Yeah. So Al, we, we've seen this this shift now where I think for a lot of folks like us growing up, you know, our parents who were in healthcare really influenced us to be inspired to go into healthcare to make a difference. And then now, you know, when when physicians are surveyed, the majority apparently are, are not recommending healthcare medicine to their kids and, and the next generation. Kind of curious, like, do you worry about that at all? Or, or how do you think about like maybe the future of the workforce given the sentiment now among physicians? I have two parallel answers to that one. One, the business of healthcare has significantly changed in 30 years, right? So we've gone from, hey, we're gonna take care of you. And, and, and you can pay what you need, et cetera, to the business of having to produce and overproduce KPIs, RVUs, all the business side for money generation has created a, a gap of understanding of why we're doing what we're doing. You walk into clinical care, you forget that stuff, but then you get reminded every time you log into an EMR, you have to document. Every time you get requests for ACC coding, it comes back to you to haunt you on the weekend to have to put that in all that stress and pressure has really blemished the joy of healthcare. Thus, the need for artificial intelligence, thus the need for automation, thus the need for taking what every audit industry has done, removing the burden of what they do and bringing the joy back to how they do it. We do the same thing in healthcare. So I think that's where it is. The other track is my son, who is a junior right now at UPenn, He's studying to be an ENT physician. So he has got the passion 
of taking care of people as well as taking care of them in a, in a way that we're very proud of. He could have chosen any of, of the careers in medicine and he chose ENT and I'm very proud of that. And so giving back and he's really appreciative of the upbringing that we had. We just passed it on from grandpa to dad to son and then uh, moving that forward in, in the healthcare industry as well. Wow. That, that's amazing. So so maybe speaking of, I mean, clearly you're, you're excited of the impact technology and automation can have on getting rid of those burdens that we've placed on clinicians. You started that journey a while back. So maybe help us understand like what got you into technology and, and informatics? Sitting in the emergency department one night, it was the Q word, the quiet night. We're lucky to have it. And I'm looking down the hallway and there, we had this rack of books that were 15 long, everything from Rosen's to Tintinale, emergency medicine to everything there. I said, if I'm sitting here and I need the information in front of me, how come the books are all over there? Why can't I make something? And that's when I started thinking, okay, let me learn a little bit of web coding so we can create a, a little local website on a local server. I did that and in, in called Front Page. It was a Microsoft product years ago. Learned Front Page, created a website, and created what I called Edwin, the Emergency Department Web Interface Network interfacing with just our computers and our ED, but it gave the information right in front of the, of the clinicians. So they can click on the link and look up stuff. They can click on the link and access call schedule information. And that got my interest going to grow into what became, hey, Al, do you want to do this for a living? At my hospital, Einstein Healthcare Network, in 2006 or seven, I was approached. I was like, yeah, this is a great, great career to do this stuff. And then I started researching, and of course, there were the beginnings of CMIOs and the job positions. So that's where it all kind of kind of grew from. And it just took on from there, starting out as the ball head guy with a computer who was going to change something to today being able to achieve. But that road to get where we're on today it has to continue education. You have a lot of information to learn about the jobs. And we all know CMIO level one is nowhere near where we are today. We're at level three and maybe level 3.5 because now AI got thrown into the mix just nine months ago or a year yeah. ago. I love the idea that like you were just trying to solve your own problem in, in the emergency I, department and you weren't planning at all to to, be, to go into tech or become a CMIO, but you just kept solving your own problem, dog fooding your own products, and then here you are. That, that's an amazing story. Thanks. So Al, I wanted to chat with you. In recent years, you've really been a passionate advocate for leveraging technology to achieve health equity. I'm curious, what sparked that passion? I think it, well, for sure, it's a trifecta of professionalism around patient care. We, for a long time in healthcare, have known that there are elements of society that aren't equally cared for, whether it be because of an unconscious bias by design, we'll get into that in a second, by the EMR, or just personal biases that we, we have unconsciously. We, we, we made judgments right off the bat, but in, in the world of emergency medicine, to me, it was the kidney didn't care what color skin you have. You take care of it and take care of the patient. Just that simple. And expanding that and working with colleagues, it took quite a few people to get this together. This whole idea launched out of our roles as leaders at New Advance Health around health equity overall. But the, the, the fine tuning of it was how am I as a CMIO able to support the goals of the network? And that started two years ago. So we collaborated. So the medical director for health equity, Dr. Brenda Ayers and myself, but also the third piece of that puzzle was the vendor working with our EMR and telling them, hey, we need your help in facilitating better processes within the EMR that we can then turn around and deliver to our patients through the care our clinicians give. So that's a win for the patient, a win for our clinicians, so we can help them better facilitate equal care 
but supported by leadership and by clinical and IT. So bringing it all together, the technical and the equity, the tech equity, and that term has been out there for, for a couple of years now. Other, other institutes have used it, but we embraced that as an understanding of describing exactly what we did for our folks. And, and the collaboration has become pretty well understood and established and part of our, our daily care, especially around clinical aspects. We have eight categories and we took three of them, uh, when kidney, pulmonary, and OB. And really went deep dive and work with each of those leaders to understand what they do and then go backwards and redesign the EMR to support their goals yeah. for it. Can I ask you, Al, when you were starting this journey for, towards Tequity, let's say Nuance, was it easy to get folks on board or were there kind of like, you know, pushback that you faced that you had to overcome? And if so, what was that and how did you overcome that? Excellent question. The answer is both yes and no. So for, for not really because people who knew that it's the right thing to do, right? Why would you give someone different care? But understanding that their biases want to help ingrain that into our EMR to better facilitate the care that we give so that anyone taking care of anyone, anybody will have the best tools that are unbiased driven for, for the care that they give. We also had a great leadership. At New Advanced Health, we have Dr. John Murphy, Michelle Robertson, who is our chief operating officer, who embraced this as this is an important part of who we are as a fabric of New Advanced Health. So around patient experience and aligning ourselves with those needs, we created a, a, an influential group that promoted this. Yeah. And now we have to go back around and now we do it for patients, we're doing it for our employees as well. And, and start, this is the first year we've had education within our annual training that goes into health equity, what it is and, and how to best facilitate care for the patient. So uh, it, it took a lot of people and we are grateful, Dr. Ayers and myself are grateful for the leadership we have at New Advance Health to help promote this and drive and support it moving forward, last two years and moving forward into the future. Amazing. And just for like folks, like let's say myself, who are not as educated in this space. Like when you think about some of the, like the, maybe the low hanging fruit or the most common examples of unconscious bias in how we use technology in healthcare or, or the EHR, are there certain examples you tend to use to illustrate the concept? Sure. One big example was the electronic calculated GFR, right? Glomerular filtration rate was based on bias research done years ago in the 50s around the differences between a white male of 210 pounds and an African-American male of 210 pounds. Same kidneys, different outcomes. And you look back and look at the results, it's like in one year we've had dozen or so patients that were not given the care equally because of this bias, we look back. So we went in and look at the EGFR, remove the bias calculators, worked with the evidence-based medicine research out there and said, okay, good. Here is the tool now we're going to upgrade it and found we went back around and reached out to those patients who were negatively impacted by the calculation two years ago and said, mm -hmm. you are now in the care group that we need to provide better care for you. And it was honest. We apologized. We relied on, on technology to do so, but they were very appreciative that we actually found this issue and now can relate an improvement and process that with them. That also drove our vendor to say, wow, that is an, a really, really amazing thing. We need to make this a global initiative. So all of their clients now have updated or are updating yeah. in the process of updating that EGFR, the VBAC calculator, and the pulmonary uh, spirometry work around an equal uh, production of care for all patients. Well, that's amazing. I think it takes a lot of courage to kind of own up to 
what you decided in the like now like we was a, in some ways a, a mistake or something that should have we wish we caught earlier some folks have slept it under the rug and just moved on but the fact that you took that head on and and tried to make it better i think is, is really commendable so well that's a, that's a great example thank you for that thank you well we got great leadership <laughs> dr brenda ears like i said has really taken this as a passion, working with us to get that done. I think we make a good dyad around health equity to make it moving forward. Thank you. That. So Al, you, you brought up the topic of education already, and I want to kind of double click into that. Sure. Correcting some of these false assumptions and changing the tools that we were using, make them more updated, less bias uh, embedded in them. That's one half of the equation. And the other half of the equation is education, what we're passing on to the next generation. If we're teaching the old way of these tools, it's not really going to make any progress. So I'm curious, what steps have you taken so far to update curriculum in this domain? We start with two areas, our leadership groups that we meet with. So either in emergency medicine, or nephrology, pulmonology, clinical care, and explain to them, here is the new way of looking at it well embraced. They have no problems accepting like, wow, that's interesting. Glad you brought this up. We're going to work with our patients as well. But we also have the undergraduate and graduate medical education aspects here as well. And we bring them into the fold of our discussions. We have a couple of projects with residents and medical students around health equity. And we've also started, or starting in January, a clinical informatics rotation within the IT department to help anyone who's interested, physician, nurse, a pharmacist who are interested in informatics to understand how it really works and what you can do to change the inside elements of care by changing what you're actually designing in the code. Cool. And, and that's that's something we want to bring back and help people understand that. And hopefully, after we get a couple each month, garner some gain there by having them come work with us part-time or something when they become an attending or et cetera in our health network. The formidable piece of informatics has become an important process in healthcare. You have to know how to use information technologies to better the care of the patient and make your life more efficient. CMIOs can help people get there with the vision and the redesign, but the embracement, the operationalization of that is a collaborative relationship. We can help broker what's available, but we need leadership to operationalize it. In the military, we used to call it mechanizing it. You have an idea on the table, how do you bring it out to the field and make it happen? And that piece is a collaboration between operations, clinical informatics, and our clinicians at the front line. Love that. So another focus within health equity that I, I know you've highlighted in the past, the importance of bringing end users to have a seat at the table. So an example, I know you have the LGBT representation within your patient and family advisory council. What other recommendations would you have for leadership teams to almost create these guardrails around their processes and policies just to really encourage equitable representation of care? Talk to the patients. Become personal with them. This isn't a black and white thing. This is who we are as a person. You know, representing the person or accurate in the EMR is the toughest thing to do. You could look at someone's profile in the EMR and try to put a picture of who they are, and they're kind of completely different when you see them in person, right? We've all experienced that. But to better understand all personalities, all personal preferences, that's a hard thing to do in a lot of different pieces. We've started through legislation at the federal level, the state level, to collect that information. And in Connecticut, New York, we're starting to, we've built it into our EMR to ask those questions. You know, what is your birth sex? What do you prefer to be called? That information is very important. One, to garner accuracy of the patient, 
but also garner the trust of the patient within Nuvan's health, within healthcare itself. The biggest piece I think is coming around is, is the trust. Years ago, the care was hesitant at best if we didn't help people understand who you are as a person. Going in where when I was teaching residents, it's like you go in and talk to the family. You don't just focus on the on the illness of the patient on the in the, in the bed. How are we all doing today? We're gonna to take care of your mom. So understanding the dynamics and the emotion of care delivery is as important as understanding the pathophysiology of the medicine you're taking care of. Very eye-opening experience when it came to to the to the patient relations, especially around this. I mean, we showed an intake process and we had to change it. We had eight or 10 different areas we had to fix in order for, to even come to the benchmark of what was expected by the LGBT community, which is fine. We're glad we did that. But the vendors don't know. We have to go back and help the vendors redesign the front end, the graphic user interface to the patient so that we can better represent Nuvan's health as a place of acceptance, support, and engagement with all patients in our domain. Al, you know, you mentioned something really important about wanting to make sure you you actually still go and talk to the patient and talk to the family and and truly understand the patient through that personal interaction. You know, with all the burdens on clinicians, we're always trying to automate more and more. So for example, in the past, before technology, you had to you know, do the entire medical history collection, you know, directly with the patient and, and talk to them and get that data. Now you could theoretically just have them complete a screening questionnaire before the clinical encounter and just automate more of that data collection. I guess question for you is as this increasing automation and especially on data collection from patients grows over time, how do we make sure, I guess, we, we don't miss out on the value of maybe still doing some of that face-to-face -face or directly with patients? I think the most important piece of that comment was the fact that we have the technology to do that. And I think CMIOs and informaticists are at the middle of that ability to deliver that. Now that we have automation, at Nuvance Health, we can take a patient, send them a URL or, or, or a link on a computer, an email, or a text message. They open it up and they can submit all their information and that flows right into our, into our EMR. That way, when I, even as a patient, I go in and say, hey, you know, Al Valerian, yes, I am. Here's your driver's license. They scan that and they map, put the map to get matched together. It's like, oh, we have your information. Any updates in this information? No, please go ahead and have a seat. That experience of the front end experience, whatever we can deliver it for a patient is something they remember. And they say, wow, they're really innovative. I just had the same experience on Amazon. I can go order whatever I want. And it tells me, hey, you're running out of dog food. You haven't, you haven't ordered it in two months. Here's, here's some more of what you want to order. That's AI. That's, that's the experience of technology advancing the experience of the end user. In our case, in our business, our clients are our patients as well as our clinicians. I equate both of them together because we're here as an IT department to give the best experience for both to work together. But from a patient perspective, that automation goes far. It builds that trust like, wow, we know what's going on. I can easily get an appointment. I can get my lab work. I can find out what's going on with me. I feel very comfortable that New Man's Health, the IT, the operationalization of healthcare has facilitated my benefit as a patient in their health environment. I'm curious. It may, I know we're jumping a bit ahead now into some of the AI stuff, but hopefully Alan won't, won't hate me for this. But I, I can imagine that as a patient, we don't mind automating away, you know, basic data collection, medical history, et cetera. I'm curious, like, you're, when you think about the future 
and how sensitive the clinical experiences with patients and providers. How far do you think we can take that in a way that patients are still comfortable? So for example, you can imagine a future where you could automate an entire clinical conversation with the patient. Will there, will patients still trust the chatbot experience with avatars in the future or, or not? I'm kind of curious how you think about what will likely happen in the future. I think it's it'll take a, a stepwise progress to get us there. By no the experience out in the real world has gone farther than where we are in healthcare. You can you talk to Alexa, you talk, we are able to speak interactively with computers to enhance our lifestyle, order stuff, get questions asked. There's no difference between getting questions answered or the answers coming from Alexa about the upcoming concert or the weather than a clinician doing the same exact thing to say, hey, we have Mr. Valerian here, let's pull up his record present that on a screen, like this is you, and we're having this interaction now to enhance the care that I'm, I'm about to deliver you. The goal I think healthcare, and what I love to see, is that if I walk into an environment, walk into a, a trauma room, it knows who I am by my voice. So you're a practitioner, you walk into a trauma room, there's a trauma patient there, it knows the patient's trauma, it knows what I need, who I need, why I need it, and is bringing the evidence already forward into a, a staging area so that when, it, when I want to get that information, it just pulls it right in for me. So when it hears me talking about, okay, it looks like we have a fracture femur here, it's already saying, okay, when I order the fracture, you want AP and lateral films, you want the hip, you want the knee. Those kind of interactions based on my prior practice, because it, it learns as, I, as it goes along, but also about the evidence. What does a trauma evaluation is needed? That knowledge that AI can draw would be fantastic because then I am thinking less about collecting data and more about taking care of the patient in front of me and the auditory sense is happening. We saw several demos and several vendors, they have this available or going to be available this coming year around that, you know, pull up his last A1C, pull up the, the next appointment, send a letter of thank you to, to this patient. That is all happening in the voice and I think more and more of the immersion of the environment, it's, it's going to be a healthcare immersion experience for both the clinician and patients. It'll happen. It'll just take time to get through it. And once patients become comfortable that you're talking to a computer to better their care, they will build that trust and that will happen in the next five years, forget for sure. It, when we think about AI for clinical use cases, I think most often we're seeing the idea of AI being more of a co-pilot where there's always a human in the loop. So for example, for folks who are using AI to automate clinical documentation or draft messages to patients, there's always the clinician who reviews and signs off or changes it before it gets sent to a patient or, or whatnot. Do you think that it's always going to be the case that a human will have to be in the loop and AI is mostly a co-pilot? Or do you feel like there will be some cases where it can be fully automated given the sensitivity of, of clinical care? You know, it depends on the use case. There, there are things that we can automate. You know, we have a patient who needs a refill of a, of a medication. Why not have a chatbot that does that automatically? There, there are technologies out there that do that. Because it's usually, well, look at the Pareto experience. 80% of what needs to be done can be done automatically for the majority of folks. Let's focus on the 20% that need that extra care of a human interaction. We don't sit around and calculate our speeds in the car, we have a, a, a computer that does it for us already. So we're just adding that computerization to healthcare. Again, it's building that trust, 
for both the clinicians to utilize technology, but it's not artificial, it's augmented for me. It's an augmented experience that we're bringing to the healthcare mar- in healthcare environment, adding better care for clinici- with the clinicians by utilizing that extra information coming in. And the patients will enjoy that too, because then they'll say, oh, wow, you went out and found that I had an echocardiogram done three weeks ago at another place because it came in through our health information exchange and the AI presented to you because you said you have heart failure. So why would I want to know what the last echo was if the patient in front of me has heart failure in her history? That logic step doesn't need people anymore. We can automate that for both the benefit of the clinician and the patient. So on that note, I mean, I think one of the things I'm hearing from you and, and from other folks too is the AI in many ways is only as good as, as the data that you use to train it. And I think you've brought up a good point earlier around, you know, unconscious biases that come based on biased data. So as I guess you think about implementing AI more and more in Nuvans or other health systems, I guess, how do you think about your data sources? Like, are, is there is a plan to, hey, maybe we may license a model from another, you know, vendor or partner, but it has to be trained on our own data at Nuvans? because we can't trust data sets from other places that it's trained on. Like, how, how do you think about using data for training you know, future use cases? Uh, that's an excellent question. In fact, yesterday we had that precise example around the vendor. We had Dr. Ayers ask that question to the vendor themselves, and we have a great discussion. You know, it, We want to use our data to facilitate our knowledge-based practices. So they're loading up all the patients they had, say, for one hospital, as an emergency department for the last six months, and seeing what the process output would be in testing mode before we actually turn on to patient care. And we want to go back and work with the vendor to say, okay, that's interesting. Why was it that the wait times for African-American patients were longer than the wait times for a white patient? Does that make any sense? Shouldn't because it's the same as the patient coming in. So we will have the ability to ask those questions and find out what that is. Obviously, totally agree with you. The information coming in and is used to support clinical diagnosis and outcomes, et cetera, has to be an unbiased database. Who creates that database and how it's facilitated and learning is both external with the vendor, but internal with us as well. And we have to have a good close eye on that for accuracy moving forward for any kind of AI implementation that we do in new ads. I guess on that note then, because I know there's some other health systems who are kind of like collaborating and maybe like merging or sharing data sets among the health systems, will that actually work or is that actually not a good idea because, you know, each health system is different. So if you're combining data that's not representative of your population, does that just mess up, you know, the model? I I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm just kind of curious if that conversation has come up. It has definitely come up around language because in the Northeast, we have a different language cohort than in the Southeast, Southwest, Midwest, Northwest. Because if you're going to apply certain algorithms around these aspects, you have to understand that data going in, it may be 20% African-American in one area and 30% in another area. Does that change your outcomes in your algorithm? So looking at the data, looking at your algorithm, and looking at your output is an important piece of understanding how AI overall supports your clinical outcomes that you see. But absolutely, those discussions have. It's not just languages, a lot of different other ways. We when in when talk about health equity and race, we actually have to go and speak with the Hispanic community around vaginal birth after C-section because there, there's a cultural thing, a cultural understanding that you can never have a vaginal birth after C-section. But we have to help 
people understand that culturally that you can from a scientific perspective help them remove that that fear and 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 trust the clinical care that they're going to give and give them the option to do so again removing it from an operational technology perspective is easy is changing the cultural understanding of what you're trying to do that's the hard part and that's where it takes people on the ground to do that uh, you know, I, I've never actually considered the bias that the patient might have as well in the equation. That's fascinating to think about. I feel like I keep coming back to education, but I, I want to ask this question in relation to AI. You've shared in the past this great analogy, a football analogy of, you know, you can get to the five yard line, but you can't get that touchdown if your processes are going off of legacy workflows and, you know, you need to get the training right with the team. So I'm curious, how do you approach change management when you're integrating new technologies? Do you have any strategies that you found to be particularly effective? Listening. I go to the end user you're helping to migrate into a new innovative process and listen. What will it take for you to go from A to N? There's multiple steps to get there. We want to get to N together, but we're here as an IT department to serve, to help you become a better clinician, a better clinic, a more financially viable area. Those things can be advanced, enhanced with technology, but we have to listen to the end users who you're working with. I'm always available whenever someone needs to text me a question, call me about something, et cetera, because we're here to serve that. So the same way we go in change, making change, we're serving the needs for those changes. We had to back out a project because the changes that we had thought would be appreciated were really not for a certain cohort of clinicians. So we had to hold, reevaluate that specific area and then re-engage them and move that forward. And not all clinicians are the same. You may have, you know, in the largest spectrum, you have acute and, and emergency and primary care. All three of them may look at a project quite differently. So you have to go and work with the leadership as well as the leadership dyad of collaboration. If you have a patient in the ED, it's the nurse, it's the medic, it's the physician, it's the APP, it's the, it's the tech understanding why we're bringing that new technology to the bedside there. Same thing with ambulatory, same thing with the acute. You have to go and speak to, to those who are being engaged with. And that goes very far in terms of building that understanding and trust because we respect that if we want to make a change, does the change influence your needs? You know, Dr. Lou, now you have this new technology. How does that change your world? Because it's going to take not a few hours. It's going to take a few weeks to a few months for you to engage that change into your what's called fixed action patterns, things you do that you're not thinking about automatically. You have a whole set of fixed action patterns around your clinical care. And now I'm dumping something new that you have to learn and disrupt the other ones to engage this with. So I accept resistance as a, that, that, that people are understanding. They're just going through a process to understand that. And we're here to help them uh, achieve that together. Yeah. That's so, great. You know, Al, one of the other dimensions you're really involved in is around patient engagement, access, getting patients to be more participative in their own care and well-being, using technology to do that. Love to know lately, what are some of the key initiatives or technologies that you've implemented at Nuance for patient engagement that you're most excited about? Our leadership team within IT has specific silos of operations. One of them is our uh, AVP around we call it the Digital Patient Experience, a DPX project. We started like three years ago. Linda Thunhurst is our leader around that, and we support her goals in enhancing what the patients are. And she's our liaison to the other areas that we need to partner with. 
marketing, patient experience are the two biggest ones we have to work with in order to bring around the change of the patient experience. So that DPX project's been going on. We've actually driven KPIs around the ability of patients to self-schedule. And that KPI has grown over time. So for the last two years, we want to bring in more and more people to utilizing our self-scheduling platform to making phone calls. And we can definitely see a growth in that as patients become more engaged that way. So that's one, one success story there. Another one is we have initiated it was called the anti-fax program. So oh. I, I, as a, as a size, like, let's build an anti-fax initiative here. And they're like, what? That's going to take forever. I'm like, it is. Because we have, again, constant established processes around faxing and paper that have been both internally to our network and externally and from outside to in. That's the workflow people are used to. Now we're going to change all that. It takes a lot of changing. Understanding what that change is and helping the patients understand that we're not going to give you a prescription anymore. We're going to send you a text message. So we started what's called the Rx Inform, meaning giving prescriptions electronically to patients. We started that last summer, well, two summers ago. 14, 15 months in, we have over 500,000 text messages sent out to our yeah. patients. No more prescription writing, very rarely, if it's a specific need, but it goes to your cell phone that you give us a registration. And we send you a text message. You click on a text message. You identify who you are securely, name, date of birth, and here's your medication. Any instructions, any videos from the vendor around the medication you're taking. And here's where the prescriptions are ready for you. Pick a time to go pick them up. So that convenience around that, and we have this on our external facing webpage so patients can understand it, is a convenience that now we're giving the patients and we're moving the work that's being done by the clinical staff to get that done. So our physicians are very happy because they don't have to write prescriptions as much, very little, little, little anymore. But the patients are happy now because they don't never lose their prescription. They have it on their phone or on device. Another one is looking at the workflow from the ED. We're engaging a project right now around emergency, in our two emergency departments around texting the progress of a patient through the ED. So I, I log in, the registrar says, hey, we have a, a way to let you know what's going on. Can you give us a cell phone number? It's like, sure. And, and we'll get a text, you know, you're 15 minutes away from being called in, that kind of thing. So that patient engagement through technology without placing any burden on any people alleviates the need for that communication or just for informational purposes, not for clinical care. But the patients are engaged because now they understand what's going on. If there's a delay, there's a reason for it. We let them know. So that we just started that, that process this year and investigating and rolling out in the first quarter of next year. So those three projects really are engaging the patient, helping people understand, because I don't believe that there's an elderly population here that doesn't want technology. I have so many friends who are older than myself who are fully engaged in technology and want that to happen and don't want to have the paper. And when you tell them why, they're like, well, yeah, sure, that's great, because they, they didn't realize it even existed. And now that it does, we can help engage them better around uh, utilizing technology in their own healthcare practices. I, I love what you, you kind of hit on at the end, which is, you know, you have to go and talk to to patients and actually explain to them what you're thinking of and gain their feedback. So I think we found the same thing where if you just look at a patient and make assumptions about their tech savviness or their desire or their access to technology, it's easy to assume that they can't or don't want to engage with technology. But to your point, if you just go and talk to most of them, I think it's very clear that the tide has turned in the last 10 years and more folks than ever, including those who are quite elderly, 
not only want to, but are increasingly expecting to engage in this ways. But you know, if you don't even ask them, we we miss out on so much opportunities. I think it's so critical. I think more than once in this conversation, you brought us back to, well, go and have that conversation with the patients and the families. You'll get your answers directly from the end user. I think that's such an important point. Right. I, I was saying that that change happens with slow, constant pressure, like like yeah, building really. a diamond. You don't build a diamond overnight. It takes millions of years, whatever, to build diamond under constant pressure to make it perfect. And we want to make as perfect an environment for our patients as possible. Airline industry now has gotten rid of, of paper tickets unless you, you do a change or whatever. You have a ticket there, but most everything is automated on app. And we want to bring that same experience that a patient has at the airport to the bedside. Yeah, I love it. So actually another initiative that I was reading about, and this maybe goes in line with the scheduling app and the the intake, the automated intake that patients are doing is around food as medicine initiative. So this is something that you've started in the, in the past couple of years, working with local third parties to really understand at a foundational level what's going on with the patients and linking them up with food banks if necessary. Can you unpack some of that work for us and maybe share how you're really leveraging technology to glue everything together? Sure. I mean, even before our health equity initiative two years ago, there was a group on one of our areas that really engaged the patient's needs and they have a little survey that they created so that when you register a patient, you're not only asking their name, past medical history, you're asking them just two or three questions about food insecurity. You know, how many times have you gone to a food bank in the last six months? Have you ever gone hungry? Have you ever a family member gone hungry? So we want to bring in that nutritional value as a medicine is important. You ask them their past medical history, their past social history, their medications they're on, but without food, they're still unhealthy. There's no medication in the world that can replace food when you're out there hungry. So, so that work was started before we even engaged this, and now we've expanded it because now we have better automation around the EMR. So now in the EMR, we're able to facilitate the same questions, but expand that globally and go by the patient's zip code to find out if they do have this, then we send that message over to the caregivers or or navigators to contact them again, either by text message or a phone call, depending on what the preference is at registration. You understand you have, I mean, I know some people have phones, but still are hungry. There's still some some understanding Mm -hmm. there how that's all working, but but we understand that we wanna care for for the person, not for the disease. If we can help with nutrition and help garner them on a regular diet, they'll be healthier overall, and that will reduce the need for medications and hopefully reduce the the progression to chronic disease, such as the heart failure or, or, or chronic anemia or, or a bone disease or something like that. So taking the process, creating a workflow around it, and then mechanizing it around the EMR has helped facilitate better care for those. We also have a project we're starting up right now around utilizing zip codes of patients that return within 30 days because something happened to them out there. We want to find out what that is and go back and work, build our path back to the nascent cause of them to start to think, well, I don't get the care I need at home or at a a sniff or whatever. I need to go back to emergency department and get readmitted because I can't get the care. What are the factors dealing with that? And that's the work we're doing right now starting to do that. So taking the social determinants of health, taking the zip code, taking that information, unifying it around the EMR workflow and make it a clinical aspect helps drive better clinical outcomes. That's great. And to your point about the, you know, there's that thought where maybe they don't have a cell phone or, or sorry, they can't eat, but they do have a cell phone. It's 
wild to me that 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 is the case in a lot of in some uh, cases in a right. lot of areas. So yeah, that, that's true. Very yeah. true. That's great. So Al, the last question that I had, I know Nuvance Health has a leadership institute called Inspire, which is really for employee growth. And one of your initiatives with the group was a program around what the future could be for Nuvance. So I was really curious, you know, what inspired you to start that group? No plan intended, but what inspired you to start that group? Well, it was came out of the, the work of Katie Cullinan, a senior vice president for human resources, and Susan Townsend, who worked together to create a nurturing process to bring new leaders into to the understanding that you are part of New Advanced Health, you know the culture, you know all the connections. Now we're going to give you the information you need to go around and excel in driving your passion for New Advanced Health and what your, your needs are. So they broke us up into, I believe, six different groups, and each one had a different project. We had a caring project, how do you care better around the understanding of patient needs? And one of them was, was just this, what's the future? What, what, what does it look like for New Vans Health? So that group worked on that and that work. And, and, you know, it all comes back together around how do we make it better for future employees, current employees, and the future of New Vans Health and growth. So that Inspire program was quite good. And we've had, I believe, two sessions of that, two different groups go through the Inspire program and look for, for, for more coming up next year. You go into medicine because you care about the patient. People care about money. People care about transportation. People care about hospitality. Our job is the business of healthcare. We care about patient mm-hmm. outcomes and, and their their wellness. The wellness also transmits to wellness of clinical staff. And if we can use information technology to reduce the burden, we also bring their joy to going to work and take care of the patients. Perfect place to end. So uh, <laughs> uh, let's flip over to the fast five lightning rounds. These are five rapid fire questions for you. <laughs> First question that we have, and I, I know you're ready for this one. What is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? So I, I'm going to give credit to to our um, president CEO, uh, Dr. John Murphy. His son's in the Navy, and he gave me this book that he read about to risk it all. Decision making in combat, extreme decisions, life and death decisions made within minutes. And there you, the book goes through nine scenarios around the aspect. And and uh, Admiral James Astavridis did a great job in explaining how they got into the situation, what he felt that was going ongoing, and then what the outcomes were. So I definitely uh, recommend uh, this book. That's interested. Awesome. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? I would love to meet Albert Einstein. I think because of the fact that, you know, you have a very, very uh, quiet person who came from, from simple beginnings, but he thought way beyond anyone. And he challenged people. That's what I get out of his reading about him. He challenged the dogma. It isn't just the way it is because we think it is. Is it really that way? You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're finding things out about interstellar space because we have ways to look further and further back in time. So we're learning differently. Is it really that way? We can pull apart disease and say, yes, from what we know and the tools we have, the vision we have of that pathophysiology is limited by the tools. For now, this is the pathophysiology of this disease. But who knows, in five, 10 years, right. we have new tools to undermine that, we'll have better information coming in, therefore more knowledge. So he questioned everything. And I love that about him. So I, I think that's that was somebody who I want to ask more questions about. Yeah, absolutely. Question three, this is a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I would love to read people's minds. Yes. <laughs> because I think I think from a social perspective, the emotional intelligence is a very important part of, of any job. And to be able to understand people's feelings 
and understand what they're seeing and how they're perceiving, not just you, but what you're trying to present is a very important part of understanding how it can collaborate and leadership. Thanks. So EI, I believe, is one of the most important pieces of a good leader to understand who you're working with and how to, to lead them in a way that they appreciate it, but also respect, but understand that you're doing in their best interest. So understanding them, I would love to read them mine because then I can better facilitate what I like to support in their success as a servant leader. Love it. We do have a follow-up. What if you couldn't turn that power off? That I probably couldn't sleep because I'd be yeah, hearing right. people <laughs> talking all the time. I honestly, I think eventually I'd be paranoid because I'd be <laughs> hearing people say, think about me, all that, and I'd be taking it in a negative vein rather than a positive vein. That's on me. So I have to, to turn it <laughs> off when, they, when I hear bad stuff. I love that. I love that ownership. That's great. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Paper. Okay, that's one word. Paper and faxing. We have gotten rid of fax machines across most of other business lines, airline, banking, whatever you want. We don't work in paper anymore. We automate the process. We are still faxing as an accepted process in many of our workflows. So we're trying to remove that. And when I tell people, uh, financial friends, business friends, colleagues, uh, uh, in-laws that, oh, they're, they're sending faxes to us. And, and they're like, we got rid of that X years ago. I'm like, yeah. I agree. But we're trying to do the same thing as well. So that's that's a big piece of, the, of our work. Yeah, love it. Last question. If you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? I want to go back to Big Bang. Yeah. Like what 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 is, what is the first essence of experience out there? You know, what what is it that 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 we all believe happened and and we've got a long way for in the last hundred years we've we said hey maybe this happened this way maybe the black holes to wow every galaxy has a black hole in the center who knew every you know well, we have pulsar sending us uh, information i just read an article the other day all right we have a signal being sent to us every 28 minutes for the last 35 years we didn't know that before that but now yeah. we know what does that mean how does that change our understanding of of that so Going back to the Big Bang and seeing it happen from the beginning and understand how everything came to be, and then coning down to us, it's like, how did the earth form and all that stuff? And, and really understanding the truth, the truth of what happened. Not that we speculate, but here's what really happened. Getting to the truth, for me, is probably the biggest uh, understanding of, of where uh, we are today and where we want to go. Because information and data gives us knowledge. That knowledge, we apply it and test it and refine it. That gives us over time the wisdom. And that wisdom is really where we want to go, not just in any industry, but especially healthcare. We have to build that trust with our clinicians and we have to build that trust with our patients. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I love the way that you put it, the the essence of experience uh, right at the beginning. That's so awesome. Well, that's amazing. That's all the time that we have for the show today, Al. But thank you so much for spending some time with us, sharing that wisdom that you brought from many, many years in the world and the industry. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit www.seamless.md. Al, Dr. Valerian, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. Mm -hmm.